This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk, directed from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is on vacation this week. But on today's show, author Nadja Spiegelman discusses her memoir, I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This. Then PW Assistant News Editor John Marr gives us a look at the changes in PEN America. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. On fiction, we have a new number one by Leanne Moriarty, Truly Madly Guilty, and bestseller Moriarty's latest One Small Decision, Going to a Barbecue, reverberates through the lives of six adults. We say that the novel holds back the meat of the story until the reader is about to burst with curiosity, but this technique strangely doesn't feel like torture. It gives readers a chance to consider the endless possibilities of every moment. So that's number one. Number two, we have Dave. Eggers' newest, The Heroes of the Frontier. The Frontier in Eggers' appealing and affecting new novel is Alaska, but also arguably The Adventures of a Terroin, Josie. We say that Eggers' shaggy plot may not be to all taste, but his writing is fresh and full of empathy. His observations on modern society apt and insightful. And that's a uh, uh, an announced first printing from the publisher Knopf of 150,000 copies. So, like I said, this is uh, at number nine, debuts here, and uh, we'll see how uh, far it goes. And finally, on the fiction list, we have Linda Fairstein's Killer Look. This is the 18th novel. We say it's lackluster and featuring ADA Alexander Cooper, who finds uh, traumatized by her recent kidnapping, jumping at every noise and self-medicating with alcohol. Fairstein is coasting in the century, we say, whose ending sets up the plot for the next installment in which she'll hopefully return to form. So, we're uh, giving some hope for the next one. This one isn't as favorably reviewed, but uh, still at number 16. And those are our only debuts this week. And looking at nonfiction, our highest one is Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir by J.D. Vance. We say in a review, in this compelling hybrid of memoir and sociological analysis, Vance digs deep into his upbringing in the hills of Jackson, Kentucky, and the suburban enclave of Middletown, Ohio. We say that Vance observes that hillbillies like himself are helped not by government policy, but by community that empowers them and a extended family who encourages them to take control of their own destinies. Vance's dynamic memoir takes a serious look at class. Next up, we have Philip Haney, See Something, Say Nothing, a Homeland Security Officer Exposes the Government's Submission to Jihad. And then we have at number 21, which is kind of interesting, Women in Science by Rachel 
Ignatowski. This is from Ten Speed Press, and this is kind of a it's an illustrated educational book highlighting women in science, and that's number twenty one. It's nice to see it up there, and that's what we have on our nonfiction bestseller list. A little bit slim. We'll see what happens next week. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Nadja Spiegelman, who's the daughter of cartoonist Art Spiegelman and New Yorker art director Francoise Mouly, narrates the story of three generations of women. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Arthur Lubau. I am the author of Dean Arvis, Portrait of a Photographer, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Nadja Spiegelman on the line, and her memoir is I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This. Hi, Nadja. So glad you could join us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So you are the daughter of cartoonist Art Spiegelman, the creator of Mouse, and Francoise Mouly, the art director for The New Yorker. And let's say it's not your average family to grow up in. Um, just tell us a little bit about it. You grew up in Paris? No, I grew up in Soho, actually. I grew oh. up in the same loft that my mother moved into in 1974 when she first moved to America. Um, she left Paris at the age of 18, in part to get away from her family, in part to get away from everything, in part to be able to reinvent herself, and wound up first at the YMCA um, right around here, and then right around where the Publishers Weekly offices are, and then traveling downtown into what was then an abandoned neighborhood filled with boarded-up lofts and illicit gallery spaces and avant-garde theater. And uh, she woke up super early in order to refloor the loft. She built walls within the space, um, and that was this. She built rope ladders. She built trapezes. She built mezzanines, and that was the space that I grew up in. And this was in Soho. And when did she move here? She moved here in 1974. Um, oh, so it's a very different New York than it is right now. Yeah, a very different <laughs> New York than the one I grew up in, too. Yeah, of course. And then uh, when did she meet your father? She met my father through mutual friends. Um, I don't know exactly which year. I think 1976, but I'm not positive. Um, and because she be she'd become involved in the downtown art scene, and he was as well. And actually... When she first met my father, she was not particularly impressed by him because he was dating. He had one of the only Jewish girlfriends he'd ever had, and she <laughs> saw him as a as very cowed by this woman and wasn't very impressed. But later came across a uh, a, a strip that appears um, in its original form in Mouse as well, called Prisoner on the Hell Planet, that he published in an underground magazine um, about his mother's suicide. And it was in reading this strip and in um, that she became fascinated by my father as a person unable to understand how he could write something so public about his mother, how he could express his anger and how, how he could make it public. And she wound up calling him just to ask him. And they talked for, I think, all night on the telephone and, um, and fell in love. Wow. That's amazing. So, so a conversation seems to be open in your family. In certain ways, yes. Yeah. In certain ways, no. We fought by talking. We spent hours and hours and hours talking. And while we were talking, we were writing in a certain way. We were like rewriting these narratives about how we each saw our roles in the family, how we each saw certain cause and events, writing large swaths of like, well, you are this way because this happened and this is the way things always happen. And our conversations were sort of these these mini wars for whose narrative would take precedence, trying to talk each other into our own versions of reality. Um, at the same time, through all of that talking, and I, I mean, I, I think I understood, I, my father explained to me um, 
ego, super ego and id far before I ever like knew who Jesus Christ was or anything about religion. <laughs> um, but um, there was also a lot of Freudian ideas. My mom was always telling me that um, that perhaps consciously I hadn't been doing something, but subconsciously I had been wanting her to punish me more. Subconsciously I had wanted this or wanted that. And so there was sort of a war even for like who, even for my own motivations was something that my mother felt like she might have a better sense of than me, but vice versa too. And um, at the same time through those conversations there, my mother is also an, um, an inherently very private person and her past, the life that she left behind in Paris was not something that she shared with me and was not something that I could easily ask about. So uh, w until you brought up Freud, I actually, I was going to say that it sounded like it was a lot of uh, uh, talk therapy with no therapist present. It was just up to uh, those of you, your family members. Um, and as I mentioned, dialogue seemed to be open. There was, there was discourse in the family. And one thing, and I'm, I'm going to jump in right now since we're talking about your mom, and I want to talk about your mom, your grandmother, you, and the line of women in your family. But, but first, um, we say in our review that as a child, you often sense that your mother's family was dangerous. Uh, tell us about that. I sensed it in the way we went often to visit them. I don't have a large family, her two parents and her two sisters and my one cousin. And in France, I just could see my mother's anxiety levels skyrocket. I could hear her voice go up an octave. I could see her, her nerves around her family. And I could sense all these tensions and the banter that was taking place in a register that I couldn't hear as a child. Um, but I, I didn't know why. I just knew that in the cab rides home after Christmas dinner, my mom was often giddy with relief and would say things like, I'm so lucky I escaped. Can you imagine what it would have been like otherwise? Can you imagine what I saved you from? But I couldn't. I couldn't imagine. I had, I had no idea. That wasn't a part of the past I knew about. Mm. So uh, tell us a little bit about growing up. Tell us – well, actually, I want to know a little bit of, about your relationship with your mother. So tell us about her and her history. I know you had said that she had come here when she was 18, but she also had, I think, a complex, one might say, relationship with her own mother. Yeah. Um, well, these are all things I discovered only as a young woman when I began writing this book and when my mother agreed to let me into this part of her life. And and once she agreed to do that, she did it completely the way that my mother does many things. Because the mother that I saw growing up was a woman who would wake up at 6 a.m., drive us to school, drive back downtown, change into high heels, go to the New Yorker office, change the cover at the last minute, um, come home, rewire the plumbing, make us dinner, um, started her own publishing company. It was just never seemed to sleep, never seemed to eat, but there was nothing, nothing that she couldn't do. She would just decide things would be that way. If there was no parking spaces, she would make a parking space happen. If the couch couldn't fit through the door, she would make the couch fit through the door. Um, and so the mother I discovered when I learned about her childhood was fascinating to me because as a young woman, she she actually was very lost sometimes and very vulnerable. She was one of three daughters to um, two parents. Her father was a plastic surgeon um, and her mother was a high society plastic surgeon's wife for most of my mother's adolescence. And she would say my parents invented superficiality. There was a real focus on their daughters being beautiful. There was a real frustration that they hadn't had a son. And so my mother was the de facto son. They cut her hair short. She was dressed in boys' clothing. And it was considered obvious and evident that she would take over her father's practice. Though Nobody ever asked her if that's what she wanted to do. And at some point, 
she realized that it could maybe have been what she wanted to do, but it couldn't be because she'd had so little agency. And so she began to sort of pull away from that script that was laid out for her and try and find other possibilities. Um, her mother never wanted to be a mother. It wasn't, it wasn't what she wanted to do. She was a very intense, very powerful, very fiery woman, um, who herself lived many adventures, but they, there wasn't a maternal closeness there or even really a sense that, sh that she needed to protect her children. Mm. And I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, how this idea came to you. But first, I want to talk a little bit about your father. What was it like living with him? Uh, was, was he uh, in, in, a, in an office uh, drawing or, or what was that like? Um, I leave my dad out of the book pretty intentionally in part because, um, because I wanted to focus on the maternal side of my family and also because, um, because I wanted to make this a really pared down story where there was room for everybody to, there was room for different narratives and different versions of our lives to coexist. And so I made it very much about my mother, my grandmother, and my great grandmother. Um, growing up with my father, um, was wonderful. I mean, he, he was always drawing whenever we were waiting in a restaurant um he would pull out a piece of paper and we'd play the squi the scribble game where he would make a scribble and then we'd have to turn it into a picture and then we'd make scribbles for him and he'd turn our scribbles into pictures he was telling often telling me stories um but at the same time uh he likes to joke Françoise took care of reality and I take care of everything else um mm -hmm. and it's true that in terms of the practical aspects of how our household managed to stay afloat and run and, and dinner managed to get on the table, vacations managed to get planned. Um, my mother was so much more the, the force in that mm -hmm. sense. Right, right. So let's go back to your, to your mother then. What was your relationship with her growing up? I admired her so much. Um, and when other people would joke about becoming their mothers, it was the only thing that I it was the only thing that I hoped for. At the same time, when I started um, becoming a woman, when I hit adolescence, um, there were huge tensions in our relationship that I think are probably no greater and no less than most adolescent girls feel with their mothers. Um, but because my mother is such an intense person, and I am as well, to me, they felt they felt huge. They felt... Um, insurmountable. I remember these feelings of just total helplessness screaming into a pillow that... In retrospect, it's hard to remember how vividly you feel when you're a teenager, but um, going over old diaries, I know that like I thought I would never survive. Um, and in so many ways, learning about her past and learning about how her adolescence had been in many ways a lot more difficult than mine, and then learning about my grandmother's past and learning that that had been even more difficult, put in perspective for me so fully what I had lived through with my mother, that in the way that we're constantly rewriting the relationships that we have with people, it's now almost impossible for me to really imagine and remember how difficult I once felt like my relationship with my mother was. What were some of the difficulties? It was difficult when I, um, well, <laughs> it's hard because this is only my version of the story. And part of what I was learning as I was writing this book is that my mother has an incredibly different version of the story and that, that, that one is not more true than the other, that these truths really can exist in parallel. I felt like the difficulties centered around, um, 
what I felt like was my mother's favoring of my brother, what I felt like was a tension that arose between my mother and I when my body started changing and when I started becoming a woman and I couldn't understand why. Um, And in learning about her past, it does make more sense to me in terms of what she lived through and what, um, what her relationship with her mother was like. But on the other hand, like, you know, my, my mom would tell you that, um, that she has always loved both her children equally and that there was never any problem with me hitting adolescence. So there are parallel truths. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, you went off to Yale, you left New York, mm-hmm. uh, I take it. And, uh, what was that experience like for you leaving the, the, the house, leaving New York? Um, well, that was, that was the first moment that my relationship with my mother really changed. When I left for college, it was as if she was like, okay, like, I'm done with you. You're complete. You're a human. I've been molding you your whole life, but now go off into the world. And that absence of pressure, that freedom was almost more terrifying than anything else had ever been because I felt so far from complete. At the same time, it allowed me to sort of come back towards my mother and and want to know more about her in a way where if I felt like she'd wanted to hold on, I couldn't have ever come back. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors. And conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Nadia Spiegelman, author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This. Um, And we're talking about, uh, at this point, we're talking about the memoir. We're talking about uh, reflecting and understanding family you are now 29, not quite 30. Uh, I, I imagine you started this a couple of years ago. What made you decide to, to write a memoir? I started this seven years ago when I was 22. Mm. Um, and there were, there were several factors. One was just that at that moment I was about, I was be, about to sort of enter what I perceived as adulthood. I was about to graduate from college and my mom was reassuring me as she often did with sort of like very powerful reassurance. Everything will be fine. You'll be totally fine. But all I wanted was her sympathy. And I was like, easy for you to say. It's all like you've always known who you were. You've always known what you wanted to do. Like it's always been simple for you. And she just like, smile was like, Oh, you have like, you have no idea what I have been through. And at that point began to tell me about a time when, um, when she'd felt lost to the point of feeling suicidal. And that was so difficult to reconcile with the version of the mother that I knew. And yet so fascinating. And it made me really want to learn more about her as a way of finding a roadmap into who she'd become and how I could become a woman. And so that was when I told her that I wanted to write about this and when she agreed and when we began working on those stories. The parallel reason why this project made sense to me was because I had grown up in the shadow of my father's work and grown up feeling like I, w- I knew I wanted to write and I grew up feeling like no matter what I wrote, it would um get compared to a Pulitzer Prize winning book about the Holocaust and that's a big hurdle to overcome. So by writing about... My mother um, and my mother's story, um, I was able to do something that was similar to what my father had done, but entirely my own and left the comparisons open to be made, but to be made on my own terms. 
And tell us about the title. The title is I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This. It's something that my mother said to me as she was telling me one of the particularly difficult stories. Um, as she finished telling it, she sort of hugged her elbows and looked at me and was like, I'm I'm supposed to protect you from all this. I'm your mother. Um, but I liked it as a title because the I and the you aren't defined there. And that is a constantly shifting question in the book is who is supposed to protect who and from what. It's interesting because after, after the, as the book is coming out, it's difficult for my mother and my grandmother to have these parts of their lives made public um, and to have them made public in my words and my version of the stories. And it's something that they keep saying to me often is, you are supposed to protect us from this. You are the writer. You are supposed to protect us. So, And even throughout the book, there were many moments in which I I wished that I could protect my mother. I wished I could protect my grandmother. My grandmother wished she could protect my mother. The, the I and the you keep shifting in that sentence. Oh, wonderful. What were some of the stories? You, you were saying that your mother, she, was, she wanted to protect you as she was telling stories about her life. What, what in particular? I think the particular moments when she when she said that thing had to do with interactions that she had had with men where she had not been in control and she had not been able to say no in a way that was listened to. Um, and actually, in so many ways, understanding those experiences of hers was fundamental to me in understanding myself and my position in the world, because it made me understand why when my brother would come home from college and say, I'm so confused, they keep telling us, like, you know, if the girl is drinking, like, you can't hook up with her, but if you're drinking, like, if you have a drink and she has a drink, is that okay? Um, and my mom's reaction was, oh, you poor thing, they, they've gone and made it so complicated for you. And yet, when I would complain about something that had happened to me on, a, on the same scale, something rather minor, but like, oh, I went in for a job interview and the guy was creepy. My mom would say like, well, you must, you should have dressed differently or you should mm -hmm. have like held yourself better. And, um, and for me, it was incredibly frustrating that, um, my brother got this sympathy that I longed for. And yet when I understood what my mom had been through and I understood that for her, it was incredibly important to have never seen herself as the victim in those situations. She never used the word, rape and she know it's not a big deal for her in her life and the one thing that she said about it often was like well i just you know i learned my lesson you don't go to people's houses like i've just i'll do things differently in the future um and that gave her such power it made it so that it's not this is she said she said even very clearly i didn't want to give these men the power to change anything about me or to change anything about how i was going to live my life and it made me understand that she she couldn't afford to give her daughter the same kind of sympathy that she gave her son. Um, and in part, it was to forge me and make me strong enough to handle the things that the world would, for better or for worse, they, those, those things are there. So you're saying your mother is a, a very private person. What did you say to, to make her agree to, or did you have to, to make her agree to, to your writing a memoir and to, to not only agree to it, but, but for her to participate? My mother loves me very, very much. <laughs> and then she understood how much... I needed this, not not to write it necessarily, but to know, and and to know, for me was also to write because it's this it's the, I write in order to figure out the things I don't yet understand, um, and 
for me, the two went hand in hand. The structure of, of interviewing her so constantly and so often went hand in hand with the idea that I was working on some kind of project about it and the need to shape it into something was one of the only ways that I had of being able to make sense of these stories that were so, very difficult. Um, I think that's, that's why she agreed to do it. In the moments when we were talking, um, we talked in a, a, a real privacy and intimacy. Um, I don't think my mother was, um, was thinking about what it would mean to publish it. It, it was it was a difficult thing to negotiate. But at the same time, she got to, she said that like in reading my book, she's discovered so much about who her mother was as a girl. Because in the second half of the book, I go to Paris and I learn about my grandmother's childhood. And my mother would not have known all of those things about her mother if not for reading my book and if not for the project. And she said that she's very grateful for that. Well, as you had said, you know, you're, you're as you at least alluded to, your, your father had interviewed his father for Mouse, and here you are interviewing your mother, uh, and then uh, your grandmother. So tell us about that experience going back to Paris, or going to Paris. Uh, she lives on a houseboat on the Seine. Um, yeah. Tell us, d d just describe that. Uh, it sounds pretty wonderful, but, but at least the, the setting. And then, yeah. and then tell us a little bit about your, your, your experience going over there. My grandmother is such, uh, she's made to be a character in a book. Um, she has eyeliner tattooed on her eyes. She has a shotgun above her bed. Um, she has brass knuckles on her nightstand. Um, she was one of the most beautiful women in Paris and is still incredibly beautiful, even at 84. There's a line in my book that's like, my, my grandmother was beautiful long after she was beautiful. She carried and held herself in a way that left no question um she lives on a houseboat that she uh that she renovated entirely herself turning it from a shipping barge into a luxury home with a jacuzzi in the center of the space um beneath an octagonal skylight that opens like a flower and a table that rises out of the ground at the touch of a remote control and a bathroom that is filled with pictures of her travels where she's in in blackface and in saris and in leather chaps and nothing else with a uh, certificate that says the bearer bared her knockers at Mardi Gras 1998. Um, she, 1998? Yes. <laughs> um, she, um, she's a formidable woman and a very impressive. She's really funny as well and a really good storyteller. Um, but she she was not the kind of grandmother that I saw in American sitcoms. She's not the kind of grandmother that I imagined who might carry around a photo of me in her wallet or give me sweets or be fascinated by everything that I was doing. Um, she never asked me any question about myself other than once when I came back from um, from a trip to Tanzania. She opened the door and was like, how did you manage to get fat in Africa? <laughs> like, these were the kinds of questions that she would ask me. <laughs> but then I, I moved there and... I had this whole image in my mind of this woman who I would discover, who was a woman my mother described in her stories of this um, some very manipulative, um, very difficult woman. And instead, I discovered this. I think age had mellowed my grandmother and the relationship a grandmother can have with her granddaughter is very different than the ones she can have with her daughter. And I think also in part because... We hadn't had a relationship before, and I came to her so curious and so wanting to know about her life. She was she was able to talk to me in a way she wouldn't have talked to her daughters because I had no scores to settle, and I just wanted to know. And in fact, the highest compliment that she would often bestow on me is, but it's as if we're not even family. It's as if we're friends. Um, and, <laughs> and we became very, very close. Memory. 
the at times your mother's and your grandmother's and I'm sure yours uh, the, the memories didn't line up. Tell us about that. Your thoughts on that and how you dealt with it in in the memoir. I think it's interesting that we have in our culture such strict distinctions between fiction and nonfiction because I think those should be far more fluid. Our lives are a certain kind of fiction, and that's a real power that we're constantly rewriting the things that we have lived through in order to explain who we've become, that we create creation myths for ourselves that explain who we become in relationship to our parents, that we and that they change constantly every single day. When you like go over old emails and realize that like you felt completely differently about somebody in the past, you can remember that for an instant and then push it aside so that it fits more perfectly into the narrative that leads up to the present and explains the present. Um, and yet, uh, we often don't agree on them. And I think that that's true with any people who share significant portions of their lives. So I think it's as true for parents and children as it is for couples who've been together for a very long time, um, that there's sort of a melding of selves, at, but there's you're experiencing the same world and you're experiencing it together, but you have such different interpretations and different kinds of stories that you write around it. And when you begin to compare notes, it can lead to huge amounts of tension. Can you give us an anecdote or a story of, of, of a time that your mother's and your grandmother's memory didn't quite align? Yeah. Um, so the one story, there, there were a couple of stories about her past that my mom would tell us when we were growing up. And one that she told often was a story of the lemon pie. Um, so she would tell us that this one, um, this one winter vacation when she was about 13 years old, um, she had decided that she was going to bake a lemon pie. And this might seem simple, but for her, it was this big act of rebellion because she was supposed to be the sun. So she was not seen as somebody who knew how to cook. She was not seen as somebody who had any domestic skills. So she and, sh and her older sister, who was going to be somebody who was going to make a very good wife one day, was seen as the one who could be creative, as the one who would be who had who had strong hands, who could be a masseuse. But my mother was the intellectual, ruthless, ambitious. And these are these are not ways that she would describe her her sister. These were sort of the family narratives that were imposed upon them that she wanted to break out of. And so she decided she'd bake a lemon pie. Um, she got they were they'd gone to a skiing resort so they she had to go into the town and bring all the lemons up by ski lift and then she had no recipe so she just um sliced the lemons and put them on some kind of makeshift pie dough which she still insists to this day is how you make lemon pie um i actually tried to tease her about this recently and she got very <laughs> defensive and told me that lemon pie is slices of lemons on a pie crust um, <laughs> um but um she made this lemon pie and people were wandering in and out of the kitchen, mocking her for it, saying like, like, I've never heard of a pie that takes all day to make. And we're like, you're trying to poison us, but thank God we're going to die of hunger before you get the chance. Um, and, um, and then when the time came to serve the pie, she put it on the table and it was so hard that nobody could cut into it. And her family like exploded in hilarity. Her grandfather leapt up saying he was going to go get a chainsaw. And for my mother, this was a moment of such, pain, humiliation, being misunderstood, because this had been such an act to prove that she was not the person who they saw her as, an act to prove, to do something kind also for her family, and it only seemed to reinforce for them the narrative that she wasn't somebody who could cook, and for her, it made her feel even more trapped into that role. So she told us that story often, but when I told when I asked my grandmother about it, she had no idea what I was talking about. And then she, and then she was like, oh, yes, lemon pie. And she told the story exactly as my mother told it. And then she was like, but 
We didn't eat the pie because it wasn't edible. We ate the pie because there was an avalanche. The avalanche burst through the window, and the snow came up to our feet, and everybody was so distracted that they forgot to eat the pie. Um, and <laughs> it was just interesting, sort of, I loved this, this image of memories filling up with snow, of like everything being, the, the avalanche itself sort of being whited out in my mother's memory and, and replaced by just this one instant of humiliation. So we have making pies out of lemons when life gives you lemons, and then you have this whited out avalanche. <laughs> How do you handle the, the dual narratives in, in there, or at least the, the different memories in your, in your writing? As much as I possibly could. What was interesting to me was not to find one truth, but to find, to leave room for all the different parallel mm -hmm. truths to layer over each other without giving, um, without giving more weight even to my own than to anybody else's. Because I think, I mean, I, if I'd wanted to write a biography of my mother and of my grandmother, a fascinating biography could be written. And I could have talked to a lot of other people and gotten their points of view, talked to my aunts, which I, I did, but I didn't include their stories. What was more interesting to me was the, was the narratives that we create for ourselves, was the way that we tell our own lives and the ways in which those conflict with that of our mother and that of our daughter. And what do you see as being the art of memoir? What, what is it that rises, that, that makes a memoir rise above saying others? I mean, uh, some may say that you, you make it about something other than yourself, which in ways you've done. <sighs> when, you know, it's weird when I was writing, I like, I really, I, I didn't read, I hadn't read many memoirs and memoir wasn't a word that I was particularly comfortable mm -hmm. with. I mean, in part, just because when you tell people you're writing a memoir and you're 26 years old, it sounds ridiculous. Um, but also because it was so much more about my mother and my grandmother, my great grandmother, somebody described it as a, a biography of a mother as written by her daughter. But I think, um, in general, I kept coming back to this book that was on my parents' shelves I never read, but the title was All Our Secrets Are the Same. Mm. And I think that that's the key to it is that the more personal, the more specific, then the more universal it is as mm. well. Stepping back from this memoir, you have also illustrated your own books. This isn't your first work. Well, you've written three graphic novels, I guess, with the, with the uh, 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 character Zig and Wiki. And I have here, you also did Lost in New York City, also, which is really wonderful. Tell us about th that experience. Those were wonderful experiences, but um, I, I worked on all three of those books with, um, with the illustrators who were the actual artists who drew the book. I just mm -hmm. wrote the scenarios. Um, and um, they were for my mother's children's book publishing company. Mm -hmm. And um, they were wonderful to do, but so different from just writing my own work because it's, it was very much a collaboration. I would write a script and then get to watch it come through life through the artist's eyes. And, um, I very much enjoyed doing it, but, um, for me, it felt like an incredibly different act from having the full authorial control that one has when one is just writing. And so here you have your, you were working in, I guess, maybe um, your, your mother's publishing company, but also within the, in the uh, uh, arena of your father's. And you were, you were, I guess, putting words to to the art itself. Yeah. And actually, one thing I was just thinking that's interesting about those three books is that they are also all about um, an intersection of fiction and nonfiction. Mm. The first two are about aliens who come to Earth and discover first the ecosystem, then the food chain. And the second one is a, I mean, sorry, the third one is a fictional story about two kids who go through the subway system 
Museum and then to the Empire State Building. And throughout those books, there are also sort of insets of photographs and fact and that intersection of fiction and nonfiction. That's part of what I've always been drawn to. And talking about facts and fiction, we say in our review, uh, referring back to your book, as the three women own and apologize for past and present mistakes and misunderstandings, this intricate family tale evokes a growing sense that forgiveness and love are ultimately far more important than facts. Um, that's a beautiful quote. Um, I think that um, even more than forgiveness, what I was what I hope to have achieved is understanding, a kind of understanding that transcends forgiveness. And for that understanding, I think you also need to leave room for the set, for the fact that there's many different sets of truths, that my mother has a very different version of our shared life that comes, that's colored by her past that I will never be able to fully inhabit, but that I can understand as much as possible. We've been talking with Nadia Spiegelman. You can find her memoir, I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, in stores right now. Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we have uh, our assistant news editor, John Marr, who will tell us about the evolution of Pen America. Stay tuned. Yo, yo, what's up? I'm Daryl McDaniels, the author of 10 Ways Not to Commit Suicide, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Rah. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Assistant News Editor John Marr is here to tell us about the developments in PEN America. Hello, John. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so for there's having been, me back. So there's been some changes, or at least there's been growth and evolution happening at PEN. Tell us a little bit about it. I myself am a member of PEN, and I came on just last year, I think the first year, but uh, I, I've seen it grow. You uh, you might actually be the only one at PW, though I'm not sure about that. Could be. Well, let me let me do a quick uh, overview. So, so PEN America uh, was founded in, in 1922. It's mm-hmm. a pretty old organization. Uh, it, it was founded just a year, possibly less than a year, after Penn International was founded in 1921 in, in London. Uh, so it's, it's been around for a while. Uh, it was originally Penn American Center. Um, and actually possibly not originally, but it was previously Penn American Center. It is now Penn America. It dropped the mm center for sake of branding partially, uh, which they also updated earlier this year. Uh, but, but, but let's go back to 2011. So, uh, in 2011, Paul Morris, he's the director of literary programs. So he runs the, uh, he runs all of the awards. He runs the, uh, membership, those kinds of things. Uh, he came on in 2011, um, when, when Penn had about 2,700 folks in it. Um, now they're up to 4,400. Um, and part of that had a lot to do with his sort of rebranding of the awards. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he described them when I chatted with him for this article that's coming out in this next edition of, of PW as, uh, as sleepy. Uh, he said that, uh, a former intern was actually running the award ceremony. So someone with no real understanding of how to run an awards program at all. Uh, and, uh, after the past five years, they have, uh, the program has, has blown up. It's, yeah. it's just, there's so many more awards now. Uh, last year they had about $150,000 in awards given. Mm. Next year, 
we're talking over 300,000. Wow. Um, so, so huge, huge jumps forward in, in, in that respect and also in sort of the, the areas that they cover. Uh, so the other big, uh, change at Penn was in 2013, their executive director, Suzanne Nossel was named executive director. Uh, she worked in the State Department in the Obama administration from 09 until 2012. Uh, she headed Amnesty International for a year after that, and then she took over Penn. So her experience, unlike Paul's, which was more on the literary side of things, was more on the journalistic side, the activism side, the free expression side. And since then, they have they've really upped their their uh, work in Washington. Mm. Um, we, they they've done a number of new initiatives. They've had a, a number of new initiatives that uh, involved, for example, uh, a survey asking members and and other writers whether or not they have actually tailored their content and what they've been writing about because of their awareness of the NSA's dragnet surveillance program. Mm -hmm. um, they presented those findings in Washington, and uh, Nossel interviewed Edward Snowden over the internet, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things. So there's sort of been a lot more... There's been a lot more focus on awards and also things outside of the literary world, on more of the journalistic uh, stuff. They've been paying attention, very close attention to... Uh, the persecution of Bangladeshi bloggers, mm -hmm. uh, secularist bloggers in a, in a uh, very conservative country, uh, those kinds of things. So that's sort of a lot of the turnaround. You know, I had always thought before I joined as, as PEN America is kind of this old guy's club uh, or old writer's club. Uh, and where you had to be asked to join, uh, you, 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 you almost had to have a sponsor mm -hmm. to join. It was, it was a pretty private, exclusive affair. Uh, and I, I understand when they started opening up, you know, I, which is the only reason I'm sure they would have me, but, um, but I, I went to the, the, uh, introductory meeting or at least the, 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 the party for new members. And mm -hmm. I found it be young, full of so many people who I know who work, who are journalists or who work in book publishing. Um, what what was the reason for that? Did, did he talk about it? Why they wanted to expand it was to get more of, a, of, of an international recognition? Uh, I don't know if it was so much more of an international recognition um, as much as just simply the desire of, of any organization dedicated to the freedom of expression to allow more people to take part in their attempts to help find freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. I mean, the interesting thing about Penn's history, I mean, th this is an organization that's been around for, uh, I, I think their 95th anniversary is, is next year. So you're, you're talking about a, an organization that has a, a massive history and, and not all of it is, is perfect. So, uh, it, it through, through the course of my research, I, uh, I stumbled upon an article written in the times in 1986 about the uh, 1986 Penn convention, which was presided over by Norman Mailer mm. at time at the time Mailer was the president of Penn and Grace Paley led a bunch of other, uh, protesters in a walkout because it was too white. It was too male mm. and it was too exclusive and it got coverage in the time. So clearly that was something that the literary community was paying a lot of attention to. So I think part of it was simply the, the, a dedication to not really wanting that to be Penn. And I don't think Penn has been that way for, for a while, but I do think, and, and Paul mentioned this, that, that they've been trying to make it a little bit easier for folks to get in. I think the, the membership dues are a little less than they were. I think they're, um, they, they certainly, uh, sponsorships are not as stringent 
And uh, th- their numbers corroborate this. I mean, they in 2015, they brought on 825 new professional members, up from 541 the year before and 296 mm. the year before that. Wow. You're talking three to 400 more people a year. That's a huge increase. Right. And then when you look at the breakdown... 17% of the new professional members in 2015 were people of color. 55% of the new professional members in 2015 were women. I mean, that is a huge change from a walkout of a Norman Mailer-led conference. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a massively different thing. So, uh, I think it, it, in part, it, it's just simply recognizing the changing in the times, the changing in what the publishing industry is paying attention to, the change in the type of voices that are finally being led uh you know, al- allowed through the gates, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, uh, I think the bringing in of new members is kind of a natural step. Right. Great. So this article will be, uh, live on Monday. So for our listeners who want more in depth insight into this, they can go and see what John had to uh, say about it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Yaa Jesse, the author of Homegoing, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another insightful interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 